Hello and welcome to Case-Based Podcast for Clinical Practice, Series 2, Episode 1. In this podcast, you will hear Andrew, a Foundation Year 1 trainee, discussing the patient he has assessed with the medical registrar Beck. Please pause the podcast at any stage to consider your own thoughts about the case. Hi there, Becca. I'm Andrew, one of the F1s clerking today. I was wondering if I could run a case by you, please. Sure thing. What's going on? Well, I have a 56-year-old lady, Gemma. She's an A&E who's presented with a 24-hour history of chest pain. It came on over about one to two hours and has been pretty constant. It started while she was at home watching TV. She describes it as sharp and central. It's worse when she lies backwards and relieved when she leans forwards. It radiates slightly up towards her neck. She can't think of anything like trauma that brought this on, and she does feel slightly short of breath with it too. Did she have a cough with the shortness of breath? And was she complaining of fevers or spiking the temperature? No, no cough. Her shortness of breath wasn't too bad. It didn't limit her exercise tolerance much. She didn't feel feverish or have a recorded temperature. Was she very sweaty? No. Has she had any recent travel at all? Yes, she's recently come back from America on a 10-hour flight. And any past medical history? Yeah, she has a past medical history of angina and hypertension. In terms of a drug history, she takes amlodipine, GTN spray, and bisoprolol. Uh, she doesn't have any known drug allergies. She drinks about 10 units of alcohol per week and has a 40-pack year smoking history. Okay, that's a well-taken history. What differentials are you thinking of so far? I'm worried about an acute coronary syndrome, given her history of angina and hypertension, and that the chest pain is central. However, I'm not that convinced by the description of the pain. The chest pain isn't crushing in nature and doesn't radiate completely as expected. She also describes the pain as being different to her normal angina. I would consider PE given the sharp, pleuritic nature of the pain and the history of a long-haul flight, as well as a pneumothorax and musculoskeletal pain. Yes, those seem reasonable. It would also be worth thinking about pericarditis as the character and timing of the pain fit very well. It is often a pleuritic chest pain, worse on inspiration or lying flat, and relieved by sitting forwards. You would also want to rule out aortic dissection and Boerhaave syndrome, which is a transmural esophageal rupture, although people are often very sick with these conditions and they are much rarer. What did you find on examination? Well, she was slightly tachycardic at 95 beats per minute, but otherwise hemodynamically stable, with a blood pressure of 130 over 85, and she was afebrile. She says saturating 96% on air. Her airway was patent, her chest had no abnormalities on inspection, was resonant to percussion, and there was air entry throughout. On auscultation of her precordium, heart sounds 1 and 2 were heard, as well as a crackly sound, but I'm not too sure what that was. Her abdomen was soft and non-tender. Her pulses were equal at both femoral and radial pulses, and there was no postural blood pressure drop. Okay. Did you have a look at her calves? Yeah, her calves were soft and non-tender, with no pitting edema. Did the examination findings alter your differentials at all? Not particularly, as the findings are relatively non-specific. It makes pneumothorax less likely due to the normal air entry. Acute coronary syndrome, PE, and pericarditis are all still likely differentials. As she was hemodynamically stable, aortic dissection and Boerhaave syndrome are unlikely, and the history doesn't fit that well with these presentations. Musculoskeletal pain would also be a diagnosis of exclusion. Good thoughts. From the examination, you can't rule out most of those differentials, 
and even small pneumothoraces are easy to miss on examination. We will definitely need to investigate for acute coronary syndrome. And for PE, we need to stratify her risk prior to deciding how we proceed. I agree she is too well, and her symptoms don't quite fit for Boerhaave syndrome, where you would expect otinophagia, vomiting, fever, and subsequently shock in addition to the chest pain and shortness of breath. I think the crackly sound you found over the precordium could be a pericardial rub. It is usually described as sounding like treading on fresh snow. Pericarditis is often viral in origin. Has she had a cold or something similar recently? Yes, she did mention feeling a bit under the weather last week, actually. I'm really sorry, Andrew. I'm going to have to go to this. I'll see you in a bit. Okay, sure. No worries. Hello and welcome to Case-Based Podcast for Clinical Practice, Series 2, Episode 2. In this podcast, you will hear Andrew discussing with Becca about investigating Gemma's presentation. Please pause the podcast at any stage to consider your own thoughts about the case. Hi Becca, it's Andrew here. Hope the medical was okay. Um, I was just wondering, uh, I'm about to order some investigations now, can I ask you about them? Sure. So I need to order investigations based on my differentials, which um, just to sort of recap were acute coronary syndrome, PE, pericarditis, pneumothorax, musculoskeletal chest pain, aortic dissection, and Boerhaave syndrome. Is there a good way to think about organising investigations? Yes. I usually like to think about investigations in three broad categories, bedside tests, bloods, and imaging. That's logical. So then at the bedside, I would do an ECG looking for any cardiac pathologies. Yes. Specifically, you would be looking for any sign of ischemia, such as ST elevation or depression, T-wave inversion or Q-waves. Keep an eye out for the S1, Q3, T3 pattern and signs of right ventricular strain suggestive of PE. Also look for widespread saddle-shaped ST elevation, characteristic of pericarditis. Okay. What's S1, Q3, T3? It's the ECG pattern sometimes seen in PE. You get an S wave in lead 1 and a Q wave and an inverted T wave in lead 3. However, this is only seen in 20% of patients. Other ECG features of the PE include right bundle branch block, 18%, right axis deviation, 16%, and right ventricular strain, 34%. However, the most common ECG finding is sinus tachycardia, found in 44% of patients. Why do you get signs of right heart strain? Pulmonary embolisms can cause increased pulmonary artery pressures that cause the right side of the heart to work harder, which manifests as the ECG changes of right ventricular strain, of T-wave inversion in V1 to V4, 2, 3 and AVF. This can signify a large PE and is often associated with a poor prognosis. Alright, that's interesting. Um, and so in terms of the ischemia, am I right to say that ST elevation usually signifies full thickness myocardial injury, whereas ST depression and T-wave inversion usually signify less extensive damage? Um, and that there can also be ischemia without ECG changes, as seen by a rise in troponins. Yes, well remembered, that's right. So you always need to interpret the ECG in the context of the whole clinical picture. Additionally, the ECG changes are often dynamic, so it's important to take serial ECGs to monitor the ischemia. Okay. Anything else I need to do at the bedside? A viral throat swab is useful. 
Other bedside tests include peak flow, sputum samples, but they aren't too relevant in this case. Okay, I'll do blood tests next. I was going to order full blood count to assess for anemia and inflammatory response, urea and electrolytes to look at renal function, liver function tests as a baseline, CRP for infection and inflammatory response, a venous blood gas to assess lactate and CO2, and also a D-dimer to assess for signs of clot, and as well uh, troponins looking for myocardial damage. Yes, those seem reasonable. I don't think you need to order a group and save clotting or culture at this point. Are you not going to do an arterial blood gas? No, I don't think it's appropriate. Although she is short of breath, her saturations are normal, and I don't think we need to put her through the pain of an ABG. I think we can get most of the useful information we need from a VBG. I agree. But if her saturations drop or she shows more signs of respiratory distress, she probably will require an arterial blood gas. But yes, I agree that you can get the most pertinent information from a VBG, such as a pH and lactate. For the troponins, if the initial troponin is raised, make sure you repeat it according to local protocol. Some departments repeat it at three hours, some repeat it after one hour. Be cautious with the D-dimer too. Why is that about the D-dimer? The D-dimer test is very sensitive, meaning that if there is a P, it will almost always be positive. However, it has very poor specificity, meaning that when it is positive, there are many possible causes for it other than a P, i.e. it, it has a high false positive rate. However, it has a good negative predictive value, whereby if it is negative, it makes a P most likely. I see. So it's important then always to use the D-dimer in clinical context. I've calculated her well score to be three, therefore she warrants a D-dimer according to local protocol. Yes, always calculate a well score when deciding upon the likelihood of a PE, which can help you derive the pre-test probability of your patient and inform you on the next best test. I'll also order a chest x-ray, and this will highlight if there is any consolidation, pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum, or signs of fluid overload. Good. Bleep me when you have some results. Next, imaging investigations will be based on the initial ones. Yes, will do. I don't want to rush into something like a CTPA while she's still stable and there is no clear diagnosis, especially as a CTPA is a high dose of radiation. Hello and welcome to Case-Based Podcast for Clinical Practice, Series 2, Episode 3. In this podcast, you will hear Andrew updating Becca further on Gemma's progress and the results of her investigations. Please pause the podcast at any stage to consider your own thoughts about the case. Hi there, it's Andrew the F1 again. Do you mind if I run some of the investigation results by you? Go ahead. The ECG is causing me a slight dilemma because I think there is widespread ST elevation, but I'm not confident enough to say that it's not ischemic. Let me have a look. Hmm. Can you see how the ST elevation is saddle-shaped and widespread? That suggests pericarditis more than acute coronary syndrome. Additionally, there is PR depression, which is quite characteristic of pericarditis. Okay. Are there any more characteristics on ECG that can help me distinguish between pericarditis and ischemia? Yes. In pericarditis, there can only be ST depression in AVR and possibly B1. If there is ST depression anywhere else, it is more likely to be ischemia. If the ST elevation is concave, it is more likely to be ischemia. I see. So this ECG, 
in the clinical context seems to be more suggestive of pericarditis. Yes, I agree. Also make sure you check the troponins. As if these are normal, it argues against acute coronary syndrome. However, troponins can also be raised in pericarditis if there is myocardial inflammation, so-called myopericarditis. Um, well, the troponins are within normal limits. Actually, the rest of the blood tests are within normal limits, except the CRP, which is raised at 30. That fits with the pericarditis picture. Although acute coronary syndrome and a P can also present with these blood tests, what does the chest x-ray look like? Here, I've got it up on the screen. I didn't think there was any obvious pathology. I'd agree with you. No consolidation or pneumothoraces. With pericarditis, you can often get a pericardial effusion, which can appear as a globular-shaped heart on the chest x-ray, but I can't see that here. So, it seems that based on the history, examination and investigation results, the most likely diagnosis is pericarditis. Yes, that seems reasonable. It's most likely idiopathic or viral in origin. The best treatment will be non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and bed rest. You also need to consider further investigation for autoimmune causes if there are other symptoms of autoimmune disease, such as rashes, joint pain or general lethargy. Also add on an HIV test after getting consent. I don't think she requires an echocardiogram as she has no signs of pericardial effusion or hemodynamic compromise, but we should check for any clinical signs of this. So what are the clinical signs for pericardial effusion? I can think of Kussmull's sign, which is a paradoxical rise in JVP on inspiration, distended neck veins, and that the heart sounds may sound muffled in distance. Yes, those are the ones to look for. Any signs of hemodynamic compromise are very worrying, as they can indicate cardiac tamponade. Okay, so do you think she needs to be admitted then, or can she go home? There is some great evidence behind admission criteria. Usually only those with a fever, increased white cell count, signs of a large pericardial effusion or tamponade, or those with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug resistance, pericarditis, get admitted. Those with immunosuppression or anticoagulation, or an increase in troponins may also be admitted. However, as it is quite late and the patient seems quite anxious, it would be fair to admit her for observation and treatment overnight, and potentially a cardiology review tomorrow morning. Okay, great. I'll prescribe NSAIDs and admit the patient. Thanks for all your help, Becca. No worries. Any more issues, let me know. Good job with the case. Thanks. Thanks.